You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Genesis eight thirteen, and we'll read through Genesis nine seventeen. However, we're obviously not going to cover all that material this morning. In the 601st year in the month, I'm sorry, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. For the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all of the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you shall be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, O Lord, this morning. 
for this word that we have just read, for this message that we've been studying. And we call on you, O Father, that you would be pleased to once again teach us, meeting each of us in our different places of understanding, growth. Father, you would bring to us everything that we need, as each individual here needs. Father, we know is your good pleasure, as our loving Father. Uh, give to each of us, Father, what we need this morning. And Father, we pray as we prayed this morning that, oh Lord, we're not interested in just gathering more theological tidbits for our arsenal of theological tidbits. But Father, we do ask that we would encounter you in these pages, in these passages. That, Father, we would, we would see you and be given the arms to embrace you afresh this morning. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. If you look up the word aftermath in the dictionary, it's actually really an interesting word. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. I'm guessing that you probably have not. Uh, this is probably a curiosity that I probably share alone this morning. But I think as I begin to discuss it, you will find it quite interesting. The word aftermath. We've all used it many times, haven't we? Aftermath. Uh, look it up in the dictionary, you'll discover that it refers to the consequences or after effects of a significant, unpleasant event. I'll read that again. It refers to the consequences or after effects of a significant, unpleasant event. Now, we can recognize two words in the word aftermath. You can recognize the word after simple enough, right? Something that comes later. And the word math. Now, this word math is a little bit tricky. When you think of math, what do you think of? Like two plus two equals four. Like almost, it's, it started out, I think, as slang for mathematics, but it's really come to be okay. I think the grammarians, uh, the gr grammaticians, if you will, I think they I think they're, they're okay with it now. You can say math. It's all right. Um, but actually, the word math and the word aftermath doesn't refer to arithmetic at all. It comes from the 1500s, and it refers to mowing grass. Did you know that? Mowing, it, it's, it, it literally means, aftermath literally means after the mowing, after the cutting of grass. What is left behind after this? The aftermath, if you will. Um, that's an interest, it's quite an interesting word, isn't it? Um, as you drove in this morning, you were driving around in the aftermath of Noah's flood. Well, we've probably never thought about that either, have we? The aftermath of Noah's flood. That's what I want to take up with this morning. I mean, that's part of what I want to take up this morning. What I really want to take up this morning is, is the way God meets us in the aftermath. But let's focus on aftermath to get started with this. Our text begins with Noah and his elect company. They're still inside the ark. And the ark is actually resting upon the mountains of Ararat, which in modern terms is modern eastern Turkey. Uh, that is where the, the ark lands and rests on ground. And interestingly enough, maybe some of you know this, but over the centuries there has been 
uh, reports of a large wooden vessel up on those snow-covered peaks. Have you ever heard those stories? I mean, the stories come from a whole mixed multitude of people, some people of faith, some people not of faith, of just at different times when there's been a thawing, uh, there's, there's this large wooden vessel that's been reported. It's been reported by Air Force pilots. It's been reported by all kinds of people over the centuries. This large wooden ship-like structure, thousands and thousands of feet above sea level, not the place to usually one would think of a building a boat. <laughs> now, is this Noah's Ark? I don't have any idea if it's Noah's Ark or not. But there have been a lot of reports that uh, uh, there may be something to that. But back to our story, the waters have abated at this point, And you recall that at the height of the flood, the flood waters covered the mountains by uh, almost 30 feet. Um, if you look out the window and look straight down, I guess that's probably close to 30 feet. So we had that much water above the highest peaks. And last week I spent some time on verse 1 of chapter 8 where God remembers Noah and the animals and he caused, uh, quote, the wind to blow over the earth and the water subsided. So here we're seeing that the waters are not simply evaporating by natural causes, but that God is actually hastening of the project. He's hastening the, the water. What do you do with this much water? Um, I could speculate on why God is doing this, but that would be complete speculation. Maybe if our attentions, if we're all up to it, maybe we could offer some comments on that, but we'll see. But we're, if you look at chapter 8 and verse 3, we're told at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in verse 4, on the 17th of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on this mountain. Um, the waters continued to recede until the 10th month. Then the mountaintops could be seen. Now, interestingly enough, the elevation of Mount Ararat is 16,800 feet above sea level. That's, that's pretty high. And it's, it's really hard to fathom this much water. Um, you know, for some of you who are interested in this kind of stuff, um, hopefully there's at least more than one of us this morning. Um, you know, at sea level, there's approximately 14.5, actually 14.6 pounds per square inch of pressure against our bodies at sea level. Um, our bodies are designed for that. We don't really experience hardly any of that. Uh, that's at sea level. Now, as you go down in the water, as we all know, that pressure increases. It increases by the weight of the water. And the formula that scientists have discovered is that um, if for every 33 feet you go down, the pressure increases by 14.6 pounds per square inch. And the whole, the 14.6 pounds per square inch is referred to as one atmospheric. And I'm seeing on your faces, you're not as wild about this as I am. But I'll get to a point. <laughs> Um, I, you're giving yourselves away. <laughs> Approximately for every 100 feet we go down, this pressure increases by 44 pounds per square inch. That's for every 100 feet. Now, if my math is correct, the average elevation of Turkey, let's start with Turkey. The average elevation of Turkey ranges from 2,000 to 6,000 feet. Okay, this is post-flood. I don't know what it was 
pre-flood, but post-flood. That's nearly 11 to 15,000 feet below the flood's surface. Now, if you were standing on the ground during the flood, you would be underneath pressure that would range between 4,800 and 6,600 pounds per square inch. That would be the pressure that would be upon your body if you were on the, if you were walking, if you were on the ground while the flood took place. Here in Hancock County, again, this is post-flood. We don't know what it looked like before the flood, but right here where we are in Hancock County, the the the, the height above sea level ranges from about 600 feet to 1,600 feet. So it's about a thousand, about a thousand foot difference. I'm going to guess we're probably closer to the 600 feet here in Chester, because we're so close to the river. Um, if that's the case, to be standing right where we are, say on Carolina Avenue or even down by the riverside in the park, we would have been under a staggering pressure of about 7,000 pounds per square inch. That would just simply be the pressure of the water of this flood pressing down upon us. It is tough for us to imagine this kind of atmospheric pressure. I call this to your attention this morning only to explore this question. When the waters had receded, when the waters had abated, when the water was gone, what did Noah see when he got out of the boat? I'm only talking about one aspect of this flood, just the simple pressure on the surface of the ground as a result of all of this water. That's only one aspect. We haven't talked about the wind. We haven't talked about when there's a flood, you see what it does to the topography of, of the earth and all the things that it does. What did Noah see when he come out of the boat? I mean, did he recognize anything? Did Noah even know where he was? How would you know where you were? I suppose the only clue we would have would be the stars. That's how the ancient mariners would navigate the seas by way of the stars. Maybe Noah had that information. I mean, in the aftermath of this, where is home? And for that matter, does it really matter where home is? You can't trespass. There's nobody to trespass against. There's no people. There's no one. There's no nations. There's no towns. There's no villages. There's no life except what comes out of the ark. Now, many of our depictions of Noah's flood are these little happy children scenes where everybody's waving out of the boat and there's happy music going on in the background. Really? I mean, this is completely out of touch with what's really happened. If we got a news report today that 100,000 people were killed this afternoon, our hearts would be heavy. But what if you got a news report that all of but eight people were killed, where would your heart be? And that all of wildlife was killed except for what could be put on this 450-foot boat. 
There's nothing happy going on here, is there? The whole world has just underwent the wrath of God, and we've lost all sense of this. And I, I don't want to harp on the wrath of God. I don't want to harp on the judgment of God. I don't want to do that. It's not my point this morning. But one of my points this morning is to do this, is to announce the very power of God, the very, the very power of the Father. Because I think one of the reasons why there's so much disrespect for God and disrespect for the, fa- for the Father is because we don't know nothing of His power. But 7,000 square inches, 7,000 pounds per square inch, well, that says something of the power of God, doesn't it? That says something of the power of God. There must have been some level of fear in Noah's heart as he looked at the devastation as he came out of the, out of the, uh, out of the ark. And there are only eight people who lived through this. There's only eight people in all of the history of the human race that could sit down and say, you know, I remember the old days. And they really did remember the old days. What old days? Well, they could tell you what the world was like before the flood. And they could tell you, obviously, what the world is like now. And they could offer you some type of comparison between the two. I would really like to hear that, wouldn't you? What was the air like? What was it like to just breathe the air? There had to have been something in the air that's not in the air now. There's a lot of stuff in the air now that we probably shouldn't be breathing. That might be why we don't live to be 900 years old anymore. But what was the air like? What did an apple taste like? What was it? Were there mountains? What kind of plant life went extinct? I mean, even now, plant life goes extinct. Some of the plant life that's nearly extinct is really remarkable. What, what, was ex- what, what didn't survive? There's so many questions I would love to, to ask. One, one year, I was traveling with, with uh, David Johnson. Some of you have met David. He's a wonderful pastor up in the North Hills. He's now retired. Wonderful, wonderful man. It was myself, it was David, and it was Brian Tritt. Some of you know Brian. And I might just, being as I brought his name up, I might just, just, just say a high word of praise for Brian. Brian has served us for more than 10 years. He was part, he's been part of this ministry for all this time. He was part of our discerning whether to plant this church or not. And he has been involved uh, behind the scenes where no one can see. He serves as our treasurer. Uh, he serves as one of our elders. He's actively involved in a church in Youngstown. That's why we don't see him every Sunday. But um, Brian, um, Brian was with us on this trip. And we were going to Synod, which meets in Flat Rock, North Carolina. And we're traveling through North Carolina, talking, visiting, really looking forward to Synod, when all at once, we went, the car went silent. We went completely silent. Nobody said anything. Because we had come just immediately upon one of those swatches that was the year that those tornadoes had gone through the Carolinas. And we're just going along, and all of a sudden we're looking on both sides of the highway. And there literally is nothing on either side of the highway for like a mile. Nothing save little stumps of trees. The, the, the trees themselves were gone. It was just these stumps, and they were twisted. And our hearts, we, we were stunned 
And like in the distance, we could remember seeing from going down there in previous trips, it's a little dealership that sells semi-trucks. You know, there's no trailers there, but there's these, you know, these semi-tractors. You know, they're big. And they're like all piled up on top of each other. And from a distance, they were mangled and top, toppled on top of each other to such a degree that from a distance, they looked like fake movie props. They didn't look like they were real until we got closer and closer and closer to them. And we saw that they were indeed real. And we talked with some folks when we got to Synod and we, were, we, we couldn't, I mean, we couldn't even speak for a good long while in the trip. And in talking to some folks down at Synod, we learned that an F4 tornado had rolled through there, which is a very, it's not the most powerful tornado, but it's a very powerful tornado. You know, I'd seen film footage of the storms, but film footage does not capture the trauma of the aftermath. That, not, not like when you see it in person. It doesn't, does it? Not like when you see it in person. Not like when you're there. If the damage of an F4 could leave us the three of us speechless. What was Noah's reaction when he stepped off the boat? Yeah, I don't know. With that in the back of our minds, let's continue in our story. Chapter 8, verse 15. There we learn that God speaks to Noah. God said to Noah, verse 16, go out. And notice the verse 15. It's just God said to Noah. That's the verse. I think it's that the silence is broken. You remember I argued in a previous message that for the most part, God was silent in that year that Noah had spent in the ark. But here we see God speaks to Noah, verse 16. God says, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Now, God had been preparing a place for Noah and now the time has come for Noah to exit the ark. Now, they leave the ship that took so long for them to build. They leave the ship that had been their refuge and home for the last year, and Noah and his family are now walking about in the aftermath of the judgment of the entire world, aren't they? And again, what they saw must have been unimaginable. Verse 17, the Lord instructed Noah to bring out all of the animals that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Of course, there's a parallel there between this verse and chapter 1. Whereupon creating the world, you may recall, God commanded his creatures to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In theology, we sometimes refer to that as the cultural mandate. It's, it's you know, I, I toyed around with preaching a sermon just on all the parallels between Noah's flood and the first chapter of Genesis. There's a number of remarkable parallels between creation and God's uh, recreating, in a sense, after the flood. Uh, I haven't done that yet, and maybe we'll do that. Um, but here we see one parallel, the, the command to be fruitful and multiply. In verse 20, we're told that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And we would ask ourselves, what's the purpose of this? There's so few animals. Why would we want to kill some animals? There's so few of them. But the idea here is that man's heart hasn't changed. I mean, the flood was quite effective in judgment, but no flood, even as powerful as it was, could change the human heart. And if you look at verse 21, here the Lord reacts to Noah's offering. 
And we're told there that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You see, that hasn't changed. Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives have been saved. Eight people. There are only eight people in all human history who could tell you what the pre-flood world was like in comparison to the post-flood world. But there's one thing that they would tell you has stayed the same. And that's the fallen human heart. That has stayed the same. And this truth brings us face to face, really, with the heart of the Father. It's not as if the Lord searched the earth and found eight sinless individuals to save. That's not what he did. Um, It's not as if the Lord searched for eight people who deserved to be spared. That's how we would talk today. That's not how we would have talked 100 years ago. We wouldn't have talked like that. Today, we would very freely talk, well, they deserved it. They built the boat. They deserved all that. It's the way we talk today. It's what we hear all day long. We wouldn't have talked like that 100 years ago. We had more sense 100 years ago than to talk like that. But that's how we talk today. The Lord did not find eight people who deserved to be spared. And here we see sin has crossed the barrier. Sin has come from the previous world into this one, hasn't it? And it's crossed by way of these eight people. The flood did not save these eight people. Um, What saved these eight people? And what did it cost to save these eight people? I mean, there's only eight. And they're really, I mean, really, if we want to measure them by a horizontal standard, we want to measure them by one another, they're really righteous people. They've been serving the Lord. Um, Very, very righteous. Uh, But what did it cost God to save these eight people. Well, the flood was unable to do it. The flood was unable to purify the heart. 7,000 pounds of force was unable to do it. It took something that was a lot more powerful than that to purify these hearts. And that something had to be more effective even than that. The clue for us is in this little phrase, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Have you ever been puzzled by that phrase as you've read the Bible? Um, because it doesn't, I mean, flesh burning doesn't sound like a pleasing smell to me. And this phrase occurs on a number of occasions in the Bible, doesn't it? You read it over and over again as you read the Bible, especially in Leviticus and Numbers. It comes over and over again that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. What is pleasing about this? What, how is the Lord pleased by this? Well, what's pleasing about it is what it points to. It points to the atonement that would be made in Christ Jesus. It points to a, a innocent party going in place of guilty parties. That's what's pleasing to the Lord. It points to the greatest sacrifice that would ever be made, a sacrifice that the Father would offer to undeserving sinners like ourselves, doesn't it? But notice there's something else here. Notice the Lord makes a promise. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, I have to offer this. I mean, let's never read these verses and come to the conclusion that God is trying to make something up to us. 
I, I have a fear that some might read that in our present state of pride and maybe read that, okay, God's now going to make it up to us. I mean, please, let's not go there. God owes us nothing. I mean, we deserve nothing but judgment. And someone might say, well, Rick, you say that all the time. And, and that's really dark. Why do you say that all the time? Because that's really, really dark. And, and I know it sounds dark, doesn't it? Do you know why it sounds dark? It's because it is. It is dark. But it's within this darkness that we see the light of grace. Without this darkness, you don't see the light of grace. And I don't like saying stuff like this. Someone might get the impression, Rick loves that judgment stuff. He's always talking about that judgment. He likes that stuff. No, I don't. I hate that stuff. But it's in the midst of the darkness of that stuff that we see the light of grace. It's in the midst of that. Within this darkness, we see the light. And the light, and those of you who have seen it, it's beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful. There's three promises that God makes here. They're all of grace, and they're meant to comfort us in the aftermath. I'm moving to the second part of the sermon, that He meets us in the aftermath. First, God promises never to curse the ground because of man. What is meant by this is explained at the end of chapter 9, verse 11. Here's a good way to remember this verse, 9-11. You like that? 9-11. Go to 9-11. The Lord says, Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God is promising with a covenant promise never again to send a worldwide flood. And this is one of the many reasons why I believe it was indeed a worldwide flood. Because we have floods every day somewhere. If it's just a localized flood, what's God promising? He's never going to send a localized flood that will curse the ground? Well, that happens, it's probably going to happen. I presume that happens probably most days somewhere in the world, doesn't it? A hard rain comes and something gets flooded. But in terms of a worldwide flood, that's never happened. It's never happened since, nor will it ever happen, because God's, God has promised not to do it. Um, so, second, God promises never to strike down every living creature with a worldwide flood. And third, He promises season of seed time and harvest, winter and summer, day and night, and we're told that this promise is not only for Noah, but also for his children. Everyone of us is a child of Noah. We all have a common ancestor. You know, we should get on the genealogy commercial and say, well, we're all, you know, we got somebody that's older than all the guys you're talking about, and, and we don't need a DNA test to get to this. Uh, Noah is our father. Uh, we can even go back further than Noah and say Adam is our father, couldn't we? Um, so we're all related to, to Noah. Um, and the covenant, we're told, is with all living creatures. Uh, verse 12 tells us that of chapter 9. And with this covenant, we get a covenant sign. If you look to me, to, with me to verses 13 through 17 of chapter 9, the Lord says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. That is the rainbow. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on earth. We could 
preach a whole sermon just on this rainbow. Easily. Easily. Um, but let's put this together. I've really kind of saved the application for the end on this one instead of just doing it as we go along. Let, let's put this together. The title of this message is Meeting Us in the Aftermath. Meeting Us in the Aftermath. We all drove in this morning in the aftermath of the flood. We've not ever known anything any different. That's, we didn't live prior to the flood. This is all we've ever known. These rolling hills and the way things are, this is, this is all we've ever known. But let's, let's, let's look at it a different way from now on. We need to understand that this is all the aftermath of Noah's flood. And furthermore, we see how the Lord meets Noah in the aftermath. He tarries. He doesn't allow Noah to exit the ark until, uh, until a certain time has come. The Lord is working to abate the waters and remove the waters and dry up the ground. He doesn't signal Noah to leave the ark until a certain time. That's something a father would do, isn't it? You stay there until I tell you you can come out. Is it to be mean? No, it's not safe yet. You, know, you need to stay in a boat just a little longer. That's exactly something a father would do. It's meeting Noah in the aftermath. Secondly, God makes a covenant with Noah and all of us never to flood the earth. Third, he gives us the beautiful covenant sign of a rainbow. And fourth, he makes use of repetition. Now, what do I mean by that? Here, I want to point to the structure of the text to reveal something. I think the, the very structure of our text reveals a lot about the Father. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean by that. When the Holy Spirit inspires the biblical author to record stories, he always does it with a certain conciseness and succinctness that actually is amazing. Have you ever been amazed at how many things can be said with one single sentence of Scripture? I've preached whole sermons. In fact, I've preached multiple sermons on a single sentence of Scripture before. So much is said sometimes in one single verse. And when God tells stories, He doesn't ramble on. The stories are often very short little stories, aren't they? But not Noah's flood. Have you ever noticed that it's like long, isn't it? In comparison to all these other stories. When I was thinking originally about Noah's flood, I actually was thinking about taking the whole text, maybe preaching one or two sermons on Noah's flood and keep on moving. And the more I kept working on it, the more I kept looking at it, the more I kept saying, you know, there's something really remarkable here. There's, there's a lot of repetition. I mean, the, the same thing is being said over and over and over and over again. Why? Let's ask the question, why? Because God is a father. And this isn't a happy event. God doesn't show up with a cell phone with a little happy song on it and say, here you go. This is a horrible event that has taken place. He doesn't show up with a little boom box with a little CD in it. This is a horrible event that has taken place. And God is repeating himself over and over and over again. Why? That's exactly what we do with our kids, isn't it? When something has happened, we reassure them and reassure them and reassure them and reassure them. Do we not? And that's what God is doing. That's exactly what God is doing here. 
Why does he do it? I believe it's because of the trauma. The trauma. The work of a loving father meeting his children in the aftermath of a catastrophic event. That's what we have here. That's what God is doing here. That's what the Father is doing here. Now, let me take this application one step further. We live in the aftermath of the flood, right? That's easy to see, right? But we actually live in the aftermath of something even more catastrophic than the flood. It's so catastrophic that actually the flood has come as a result of that catastrophe. And what catastrophe do I have in mind? It's the catastrophe of the fall of mankind. I, I want to thank you. Um, not all of you are here this morning, but I want to thank you. And here's, I, I wrote this yesterday morning, this little section here of my sermon. I wrote the words, I want to thank you. I wrote these words. Many of you have come to Tammy and I over the last few weeks, and if you, you've poured your heart out to us over issues that are going on in your life. And first of all, I want to thank you for doing that. I want to thank you that you have included Tammy and I in these things that you're going through. And I'm bringing it up because so many of you have done it. We're, we're, we're all like... This morning, we, we all come through those doors and we all have these things that are really burdening us. Not every single one of us, but a, a big majority of us do. These issues, they're all different issues. In fact, they're, they're, they're really different. Many of the issues are really, really different. But they all have one thing in common. Do you know what every one of these issues have in common? They are the aftermath of the fall. That's what, they, that's, that's what they all have in common. And that's why I didn't really want to talk about the rainbow this morning. I wanted to talk about how the Father meets His children in catastrophe. How the Father meets His children after a catastrophic event. How the Father meets His children when it's happening. Where is the Father when it hurts. Because it hurts, doesn't it? It's hard to get it out without even tearing up because I know some of you are in so much pain. Because it hurts. Where's the Father when it hurts? Where is He? When Noah's on a... I'm pretty convinced Noah didn't hear from the Lord for probably a year. Where was, where was God... When Noah's on the boat, was Noah just comfortably kicking his feet back on the boat saying, okay, we just ride this thing out? No, they hadn't been imagining what's going on beneath them, what's going on on the earth, what's happening to all of the neighbors, what's happening to all the people, what's happening to the earth, what is it like? I mean, hey, put yourself in that boat, what would you be going through? And, and it seems that God was pretty silent through that whole thing. Where is he at? Well, we know because he's given us the story. We know where he was at the whole time. Though Noah may not have been able to hear his voice, what was the Lord doing? He was holding those sticks together. Because it's a bunch of sticks that Noah did the best he could to put together. They were just a bunch of sticks. There's no way that thing could have survived 
such a catastrophic event if it wouldn't have been for the sovereign hand of God holding it together. Where was God? Holding. He was holding. When you're hurting right now, where is God? He's holding you together. If your faith and trust is in Him, He's right there. I would say run to Him, but you don't got to run because He's right there. He's right there. He's holding you. Right there, He has a hold of you. But He seems so silent. He seems so very, very silent. But He's right there. When it's time, verse 15 will come. God will speak. You'll say, okay, you can come out now. You can come out. All of this to say is that the Lord is going to bring us to the other side. He's going to bring us to the other side. Some of you have heard me say exactly that to you. He's going to bring us to the other side. Where are we at? We're all, if your faith and trust is in Jesus, we are all in God's ark. Who is the ark? The ark is Jesus. And Jesus took that 7,000 pounds of pressure. He took that so that we could rest comfortably in Him. And He's going to take us to the other side, isn't He? Nothing can pluck you from His. He's so strong. One of the reasons why I wanted to go into this was just to see how powerful He is because He is so strong. A lot of times, we don't have any respect for Him because we don't realize how strong He is, but He is so very strong. How could Jesus endure that? Well, because He's God. He's so very strong. The comforting part of Him being so very strong and so very powerful is it doesn't matter what your problem is, you can go to Him with it, and He's strong enough to handle it. You don't even have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about that. He can handle it. Nothing can pluck you from His hand. Look to Him. Seek Him every moment of every day. Remove everything that's in the way of seeking Him. If there's something in the way of seeking Him, you know what it is. Get it out. Don't fool around with it. Get it out. Get rid of it. You don't want it. If it's between you and Him, look to Him. Seek Him afresh every moment of every day. Remove everything that's in the way and enjoy Him. And lastly, trust Him. Trust that He's meeting you in the aftermath. Because everything that's bad that has been done to you is the result of the aftermath. And God meets His people in the aftermath. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, even in this small church, there's so much pain. It moves our hearts. There's so many eyes this morning that are wet, Father, and for good reason. Because we live and dwell and breathe in the aftermath of the fall. Oh, Father, we realize, we realize we've contributed to this aftermath. We realize we have sinned against you. We repent of it. Father, we also see from this story, just as you held those sticks together, safeguarded your people, all eight of them, in that ark, you were also holding us together. And Father, 
we thank you that though you may seem far from us right now, you're right there. And when it is time, you will speak. When it's time, you will bring us over to the other side. So, Father, we see that you powerfully comfort us in the aftermath. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.